Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendet with the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is my good friend Ilan Berman, the president of the American Foreign Policy Council. Ilan, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. And it's been entirely too long since uh, we've had you on the program. Thanks for making time. Oh, great to be back. Uh, in, indeed, uh, a pleasure. And before we get started, a word from our sponsor, HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Ilan, uh, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Uh, and I just want to say that you've put a, a, a new book out uh, on Russian disinformation uh, and its efficacy and would love to have you uh, come and join us to uh, discuss that work. But now we're going back to another area of expertise of yours, uh, the Middle East, uh, and to get your take on where we are now a month after uh, the heinous October 7 attacks, um, devastating uh, impact on uh, Israel, uh, and it is now prosecuting a campaign to eradicate uh, uh, Hamas uh, from Gaza. But the human toll has been extraordinary. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before in, Israel ends up buckling to some form of international pressure, uh, even as uh, allies like the United States and France uh, and the United Kingdom maintain steadfast support. At the same time, they're increasingly saying, hey, it's important, you know, you're entitled to justice, but you're not entitled to vengeance. And at some point you, you cross that line, even if Israel now is saying, I'm going to go crazy landlord times three, as, as they did after 2006 uh, against Hezbollah. Where do we stand right now? And how right. well, effective are any of these means being in actually accomplishing uh, Israel's aims? Right. Well, no, I, I, I think this is the right question, because what you've seen over the last month has been this this uh, real sort of wake up call, both in terms of Israeli strategy, but also in terms of uh, this pressing need to have a future plan. Right. So uh, on the first part, first, um, the. Israelis, right, all of the Israeli uh, officials and experts that I talked to and I've been talking to for the last several weeks have uh, really been unified in this sense that they uh, miscued on the civilizing effect of economic prosperity, right? Um, the economic disparity between Israel and the Palestinians is, is great. It, um, and But uh, empirically speaking, the Palestinian condition has been ameliorated somewhat. And just like the United States in the past has sort of miscued on the idea of uh, the civilizing effect of trade with China, right? This is the sort of the, the, the now much maligned uh, responsible stakeholder paradigm, right? The Israelis are guilty of that as well, right? There was a sense that as long as economic conditions were creeping towards amelioration, uh, on the part of the Palestinians, there's really nothing to worry about in terms of security. And what that did was it created a very reactive Israeli strategy towards the Palestinians. In, whereas the Israelis would go about business as usual, and if there was a terrorist attack, they would respond with a limited, targeted uh, military operation designed as tactical retribution for that terrorist attack, right? And now we're in a completely different world, right? We are in a world where the Israelis figured out that this was a bankrupt strategy. 
they are pursuing a uh, really dramatic um, uh, sort of uh, effort to root out Hamas, right? Root and branch. Uh, whether or not that's actually possible is a completely different story. Um, but it's very clear that they've crossed the Rubicon and they're sort of in a different place. Um, but where that lead, leads us is, is I think, very interesting. And, and it's, you know, we, we're all witnessing sort of, you know, the, the dismantlement of the Gaza Strip in real time. Uh, this is obviously has tremendous, uh, tremendous humanitarian consequences. And the Israelis have been uh, not as forthright as they should have been from the start in terms of what it will take to move beyond this, right? What, what it will take, right? They're beginning to do this now. And I can tell you from my conversations with uh, Israeli experts that almost from the start of the Gaza operation, there were private individuals, there were think tanks and policy institutes that were working on a Gaza reconstruction plan. But it's only been in the last couple of days that the Israeli leadership has really gotten on this bandwagon, that there needs to be a, a plan for the day after. I think that's all for the good, because that's going to have a shaping uh, effect on what Israel does in the here and now as right. it prosecutes this campaign. Um, I, I, just uh, one point, right? But Gaza uh, has been systemically hobbled, right? So even if the situation in the West Bank has improved, uh, as indeed it does, because is, Israelis go and get better Palestinian food in the West Bank, Gaza has been uh, pretty isolated and become a hotbed. And unfortunately, the Israeli government's approach has been to actually foster Hamas. Uh, as a way to point to that and say, see what happens when you cede territory. Uh, and if, as long as they're allied in any fashion with the Palestinian Authority, I have no peace partner, right? As it's sort of pressed ahead with settlement activity on the West Bank. So much so, in fact, that the Palestinian Authority in the wake of this, because the PA has been abiding by its security agreements with Israel, the Palestinian Authority is now under fire by Palestinians on the West Bank, especially since settler activity has really picked up, illegal settler activity has picked up. Uh, unfortunately, uh, under this significantly right of center Israeli government, r to the point where the Hamas leadership, uh, Ilan, is is more popular than the corrupt Palestinian Authority leadership. What's the who you know? This is a critical question for some in the IDF as well. What's the end game, and who gets installed at the end of this when? You know, I mean, there are Israeli military friends of mine who tell me, I mean, with each strike, you are also creating more future terrorists at the end of the day. Hamas is not viable. The Palestinian Authority doesn't seem particularly viable. Who steps in at the end of this debacle to instill some degree of order coming out of this? Right. Well, and that's really, to me, that's the $64,000 question because, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, the... Uh, public opinion, right? And it may be different now because of what we've seen over the last month, but public opinion uh, before October 7th was very squarely in favor of Hamas and against the Palestinian Authority <clears throat> because Palestinians had experienced this, uh, you know, pronounced failure to thrive under the chairmanship of Mahmoud Abbas. Um, and there was this sort of this radicalizing effect, right? It's not, I mean, it, it, settler activity is, is certainly part of it, but it's not just that it's also the the fact that you know we had uh foreign aid from the united states as well as from other countries that was flowing into the palestinian authority irrespective of whether there was actual actually serious movement to curb corruption and to sort of to, to reform institutions um and uh you know the the palestinian the average palestinian sort of noticed this 
And as a result, you know, they were uh, more susceptible to Hamas messaging than they would otherwise have been. Um, but that question uh, of who comes next is hugely important. And it's not one that's going to be solved in a vacuum. We have, uh, together with the Israelis, really laid the foundation for this because the United States, uh, as, as a major grantor to the Palestinian Authority over the years, could have pressed much more for a stable line of succession in the Palestinian Authority. Um, we haven't done that. We've uh, sort of, you know, through our through the our silence and our uh, commensurate aid, we have laid the foundations for a Palestinian civil war, or a civil war in the Palestinian Authority. Um, once Mahmoud Abbas leaves the political scene, that is hugely significant because we don't want Hamas or other Islamists or other uh, extremist factions to sweep, uh, swoop in and to sort of, to, you know, to, to claim the prize. Um, but who has the credibility to lead the Palestinians after this isn't going to be decided in Washington. It's not going to be decided in Jerusalem. And it, it's a hugely vexing challenge. Is it somebody like Omarwan Barghouti or somebody like that? Uh, who, you know, there are some Israelis who've told me uh, that, look, I mean, he could become a Mandela-like uh, figure at the end of the day, emerging from an Israeli jail uh, to help steer sort of a brighter future? Possibly, although although I have to say that that I, I don't hold out such high hopes for Barghouti, but that um, sort of... By the way, he's also, of... he's imprisoned for, you know, on murder charges, right? I mean, so that's also potentially problematic, but I'm right. I'm just trying to grasp for something creative. Uh, <laughs> right. but, well, but, well, because, right, I mean, Hamas was built up, um, you know, Israel thought it could just keep mowing the grass on it. We can keep undermining the Palestinian Authority. I mean, I think ultimately the idea was how... Uh, you, you can get as much of the West Bank as possible and not have a two-state solution. And now it looks like the only solution to this is a two-state solution. And so the question is, who emerges from a whole bunch of corrupt individuals that don't have a lot of credibility? It's not going to be Mahmoud Dahlan, likely. Um, right? I mean, so are there any figures that jump out to you as somebody who's watched this scene for a long time? Um, yeah. So, so no, no, not beyond the names that you mentioned. And I, I think that really speaks to this leadership deficit that has been um, perpetuated in the Palestinian Authority and aided and abetted by Israeli inattention and American inattention. And this creates, I, I think, an enormous challenge, not just in leadership terms, but also in terms of the viability of the Palestinian economy, right? Because what we've seen, right, what I talked about at the, at the outset, this civilizing effect, the gradual civilizing effect of, uh, you know, uh, incremental betterment of uh, the livelihood of Palestinians, a lot of that was derivative in nature. Uh, it wasn't because the Palestinian Authority or the Gaza Strip has a robust internal economy. It was because you had laborers that traveled into Israel and had gainful employment there. Well, all of that is now done, right? It's now done in large part because of the security situation. It's also done because there are credible reports that at least some of the Hamas incursions into Israeli uh, villages were facilitated by people who had work permits um, in, uh, in Israel itself. And so what that does is it reinforces the sentiment that some of the Israeli government's more extreme members like Itamar Ben-Gvir have talked about about the fact that what you actually need is an economic decoupling. So the challenge that we're looking at here is not just a political leadership challenge, it's also an economic prosperity challenge. 
and it makes it all the more difficult. Salam uh, Fayyad, uh, somebody well-respected. Do you think somebody like him could emerge if the Fatah leadership agrees to it? Well, Salam Fayyad has uh, for a long time been the darling of uh, uh, folks in Washington that have focused on this issue. But, you know, uh, as one uh, Israeli official said to me with a smirk on his face uh, a few years ago, he has a bigger constituency in Washington than he does or within the Beltway than he does in the Palestinian territories. Right. So the, the, the problem here is also one of authenticity. Salam Fayyad is uh, somebody the likes of which you want. Right. A technocrat who's sort of you know, uh, committed to development um, that you want uh, at the helm of the Palestinian Authority moving forward. But whether or not there's going to be a rally effect around him is a completely different story. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, the person who's polling the highest uh, is the man who was the architect of this uh, October 7 attack, uh, and he's uh, still uh, in Gaza. And he's polling ahead of Mahmoud Abbas and everybody else. So uh, every, every once in a while, when you think you're being too clever, you might be getting a little too clever. I, I think that's right. And, and it speaks to that larger question of the missing Palestinian center. Right. Because what we're actually talking about is because of the fraught relationship with Israel, because of a failure to thrive internally, you've seen Palestinian politics move in the direction simultaneously of apathy and extremism to the point where the most extreme voices in Palestinian society are the ones that are now gaining more resonance. Right. So it is uh, correct to say that Hamas does not represent all Palestinians, certainly. But it is not correct to say that it doesn't represent any Palestinians. And this is a challenge politically that we're going to have to grapple with as we move forward. Um, let me ask one last uh, question. Can, sure. Does Israel sure. need a strategic shift uh, in its uh, messaging? There were some who thought, you know, go, go into the West Bank as a uh, liberating conqueror and bring with you food, fuel, medicine and, and the like to try to change uh, the dynamic um, is it too late for a move like that? Because we're still in the retribution stage of the of the campaign. If you know, however understandable the rationale for that is, is there is it time for maybe a strategic shift on Israel's part to try to change the narrative? Right, and I think we're beginning to see that at least rhetorically, because the Netanyahu government, which was studiously silent on this issue for a long time, has now begun talking uh, about. Uh, already about reconstruction, about prosperity for the Palestinians, right? So there is a sense in Jerusalem that there really needs to be a more uh, comprehensive, forward-looking strategy, right? It's not just about uh, rooting out Hamas. It's also about, you know, creating a stable scenario for the Palestinians moving forward. Whether that actually translates into, uh, you know, a shift in how they're doing it, a sort of a humanitarian aspect that's added on, um, I, I think that would be very welcome. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. The second question to me is that even if it does happen, would we notice in the sense that, you know, and we've seen a lot of stories about this, that, you know, the media coverage of this conflict has focused disproportionately on the effects of the Israeli military campaign, not the Israeli messaging to the Palestinian civilian population that came before it. Um, and so all of these gestures are good and they could actually change the material facts on the ground, but they'd be much more impactful if the international community paid attention to it as well. 
Ilan, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Oh, my pleasure. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Joining us now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and is one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, uh, thanks so very much for joining us and hope you had a great weekend. Thank you, Vago. Uh, hope you had a good weekend as well. Uh, indeed, a uh, great weekend. Uh, and here we are again uh, talking about a very consequential uh, war. Um, talk to us a little bit about the seeming disconnect uh, between President uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, and uh, the Chief of Defense Staff, uh, Zaluzhny, uh, who uh, last the um, week before last gave uh, an interview to The Economist in which he said, look, absent some massive technological breakthrough, we're going to be looking uh, at a possible stalemate uh, in this conflict. And the, the proof is uh, the battlefield lines aren't changing that much, even though the sacrifices being made by Ukrainians uh, is is extreme. Talk to us a, a little bit about what this episode tells us. Chief of Staff Zaluzhny's interview with The Economist was relatively detailed, was very honest, and it was parsed in, um, in detail by military analysts and, of course, on media. He did speak about the need for another set of weapons and systems to break out of this positional warfare and the stalemate that the Ukrainians and Russians are finding themselves in right now. He did talk about the need for UAVs, for unmanned ground vehicle systems, uh, for breaching um, operations and other advanced weapons to gain an advantage over uh, the Russians. What the interview communicated and, and telegraphed to the large international community is that this was sort of the public admission that um, things are slowing down on the front and they're becoming more and more stalemated with each passing day. And we're now seeing these words in uh, U.S. public media, New York Times, Washington Post articles and others are now using the word stalemate and others, even though six months ago that wasn't really the case. And of course, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, tried to sort of um, issue a correction saying that uh, we're not stalemated, the war is still ongoing, there's still momentum, he, he believes in the victory. And so that may have created some form of disconnect between the two. I think in reality, there's a recognition that, of course, uh, Russian defenses are relatively strong, that Russians are putting a lot of resources to the front. There's a recognition that Ukrainian forces can probably achieve a breakthrough in, um, in one part of the front, but uh, it would have to take advantage of uh, such an achievement and would have to do it relatively quickly. And what has happened in the last several months, and we've been talking about it at length, probably every Monday, is that uh, Russian defenses are relatively strong. They are multi-layered. They're still holding. Russians have dug in very significantly. And uh, this type of warfare usually favors the defender when... Um, one side tries to storm such entrenched positions. And what has happened on both sides of the war is that advanced ISR elements like drones have made it relatively difficult to mass a large number of forces for a significant breakthrough for either side. What Zaluzhny wanted was um, um, an additional advantage in these weapons and systems to overwhelm the Russians and achieve a breakthrough 
that could then be exploited. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about what the alliance that's supporting Ukraine has to do next, because one of the points uh, General uh, Zaluzhny was making was we need to have a technological breakthrough. You know, he explained we need our new uh, version of gunpowder, right, which was the leap ahead technology. Uh, in each and every single case, we're seeing that the, uh, the you know, wherever the Ukrainians have a drone capability, uh, the Russians have developed slightly longer range, faster uh, drones, right, eventually outsticking the adversary. Where is the investment that the alliance has to make and the capabilities the alliance has to be delivering Ukraine? Because our capabilities are depleting, unfortunately, and Ukraine's ability to fight will be determined by how much equipment we can we can give them and whether the equipment we give them is actually suited for purpose. Right. One of the points Zaluzhny made was, you know, he expressed gratefulness, but he said we didn't get fighters. We didn't get long range missiles when we needed them. We didn't get fighters when we needed them. We're now getting them. That's great. But we're a couple of months, if not a year behind schedule in terms of helping us with uh, that offensive. What is the next generation of capability Ukraine needs uh, if it's going to succeed in this campaign? Well, uh, United States is delivering a lot of counter UAS and electronic warfare capability. And that is definitely key. United States has delivered and probably will continue to deliver advanced missile capabilities that would allow Ukrainians to strike deep into the uh, Russian rear and uh, disrupt their logistics and other related operations. Uh, Ukraine has also indicated it is going to launch long-range kamikaze drones to try and disrupt a Russian war effort. They're probably going to go after not just military bases, but probably defense industrial enterprises as well. All of that taken together creates uh, sort of a momentum that Ukraine needs to hold off the Russians and, again, achieve a breakthrough. Uh, but... Um, I think what Zaluzhny's interview has also done is um, it has forged sort of a narrative that is going to be repeated and copied and pasted elsewhere that this war has stalemated in the most direct sense. And so what Ukraine has to do now is craft a different narrative to showcase that the stalemate can, in fact, be broken in one form or another, or at least for Ukraine to have enough advanced weapons to telegraph and to showcase that they are actually gearing up for some sort of breakthrough against the Russians. Um, uh, give us uh, a little bit of a sense on where uh, the battlefield uh, stands uh, right now. Avdivka uh, is a contested point. Uh, Zaporizhia, I mean, there are a number of points on the battlefield, even if we focus on Avdivka, uh, that have been the site of very brutal uh, fighting and where the Russians are trying to change the dynamic a little bit. Walk us through uh, you know, sort of the latest as you see it in terms of how the battle lines are developing? Well, it's a bloodbath, and both sides are pouring a lot of resources into that specific battle. Russians cannot afford a loss after um, so much blood and treasure has been shed on that part of the front. Russians cannot afford a Ukrainian breakthrough. Ukraine, on the other hand, cannot afford a, uh, a Russian advantage as well. So both sides are pouring a lot of resources, and the fighting is made that much more difficult, again, as I've mentioned, by the availability of so many different types of ISR assets, so many different drones that prowl the battlefield and record and observe anything that moves. Usually, if you are seen on the battlefield, you will be tracked and quite possibly attacked, probably with FPV-type drones. So it's a very different type of battlefield that even existed a year to a year and a half ago. Uh, 
Um, I want to go uh, just end uh, the interview by going and asking you something absurd or, or seemingly absurd that the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov uh, said about Vladimir Putin. And it's uh, so amusing that it's worth getting your take on. Right. He um, indicated that there's only one Putin and that uh, the Russian president doesn't have doubles or it doesn't have triples that sometimes fill in when the Russian president may be sick or incapacitated. And he may have been joking, but the fact that he had to say it publicly is probably important in and of itself. There's a lot of narratives out there, a lot of rumors. When Putin is not seen for days or weeks at a time, and rumors that he may have been sick, dead, or dying, or like a Schrodinger's cat, neither alive or dead. Um, and so when the Russian president suddenly makes the appearance afterwards, and behaves in a manner that's a little a little different from the way that he behaved prior to that uh, prior to that disappearance people start asking questions so there's lots of rumors out there so dmitry peskov actually had to say that there's only one vladimir putin and he doesn't have any doubles well we can rest assured uh, that uh, there is no Putin. And I, I suppose we should uh, thank our blessings, uh, Sam, that, because I'm not sure the world really would like to have two Putins uh, at the at the end of the day. Um, but by the way, one, one last question. How is all of this uh, very briefly playing uh, in uh, Russia, right? I mean, we have a tendency of sometimes overplaying divisions and what's going on in Russia. Russia continues to crack down, whether it's on Navalny or on Vladimir Karl Murza or, or any other forms of dissent. Ultimately, is there any shift in Russian public opinion about this war? Not really. Nothing that could be observed um, on the surface, certainly nothing that is discussed in public. It appears, again, as we have indicated in weeks and months prior, that the Russian society and the people are uh, they're resigned to it. Um, we don't really see any significant dissent in any type of media or in any type of population group. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great day and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. And as it's Monday, joining me now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us and I hope you're over your cold. More or less, Vago. There's still still a little residual, but it's uh, it's it's more or less done. Um, this uh, new one is uh, pretty uh, brutal. So it family is. members have have had it, and it's uh, it's it's terrible. It's a um, so uh, give us your sense. Uh, on the House Speaker's first week uh, on the job. A lot of folks are struggling to make uh, sense of it. We heard from Michael Herson from our regular Washington Roundtable uh, about that last week. His, uh, the new Speaker's first act was the $14.3 uh, billion dollar measure uh, supporting Israel, which is dead on arrival in the Senate and is going to be uh, vetoed by uh, the president. And yet in this first week, you see some method to the madness, even if it not, might not be apparent to the naked eye. Walk us through your model. Sure. Well, I mean, the simple fact is you bring a bill to the floor that gets a House vote, but has not a snowball's chance in hell of making it to the Senate, let alone being enacted. So it's an exercise in messaging. Um, hasn't gotten you any closer to actually getting aid to Israel. Uh, the questions about Ukraine are still open. Um, but I, I really do think, you know, kind of the slow roll that's going on here is as long as House leadership can keep this ball of continuing resolutions, maybe a shutdown or two going, they'll ultimately get, 
you know, what they've been looking at, looking for, which is a cut to FY24 non-defense discretionary spending to levels uh, at least at the FY22 level. And that's kind of where they set this all in motion earlier right. this year. Um, and then, of course, you know, we had the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And right after that, the House starts marking appropriations bills to levels below um, those who were set forth in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. But, you know, the, the key here is the Fiscal Responsibility Act has a trigger that if you don't have 12 of the appropriations bills, any of the 12 appropriations bills enacted by January 1st, you start running FY24 appropriations at 99% of the FY23 level. The full impact doesn't take place until April 30th, 2024, but I'm of the mind that if I'm a defense acquisition official or someone else in, in any of the other federal agencies, all federal agencies that are going to be affected by discretionary spending, you're probably going to start behaving as if that cut is likely. And so I think, you know, the, the risk here is that this is what these guys are after. And they're not interested in a compromise on the budget that might see non-defense set at higher levels you know, than what they're marking these bills at. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, that would necessitate necessitate a cut to defense. Um, doesn't seem like a biggie, you know, if, if you do the math, but if you walk through the math and think about, well, it's hard to cut military personnel. There are probably going to be some anomalies in a, in a continuing resolution. Operations and maintenance is most likely going to be preserved um, to, to, you know, sustain readiness, just given the state of the world we're in. That means most of these cuts fall on in, on the investment accounts, and and the, still the big question mark is what's going to get salvaged out of these uh, these supplemental requests the administration is sending over. So, uh, I think there's more going on here than just you know the appearance of the uh, House leadership throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping it sticks. I mean, I I think they'd be quite content with with an outcome that got them to where they set out to get to in the first place. Um, so how do you think this shapes what's to come as far as, uh, right? I mean, you still are giving your odds, right, uh, that we are going to have a measure. What does this look like as far as you're concerned? Well, yeah, it's 45% that this happens, that you see an FY24 budget below FY23. I know I'm talking about the defense budget, but obviously uh, non-defense gets in there too, um, with, with really de minimis amounts for supplemental spending. You know, the other 45% is somehow, uh, you know, kind of this extreme right wing position in the House is blocked or overturned. I don't know what the catalyst is for that, other than just looking at the world of fire here right now, you would think that might get <clears throat> some action. Uh, but um, that's my hope is that somehow we get we get a a shift in consensus. I really don't worry about the Senate on this. It's the House that's the problem. Um, and then I think when they really look at the potential damage that can be done to defense, the implications that would have for the U.S. standing in the world, what that might mean for larger security issues. You know, if you somehow force Ukraine to the ceasefire table um, to negotiate with Putin, which isn't anything that Zelensky is indicating he wants to do today, but he may be forced to do that. I mean, it just has really bad outcomes for global security. So I don't know when that'll happen, Vago. You know, my, my sense is it's probably going to be in the January, February timeframe. We have to kind of touch this wire and start to see right. how it shapes things. 
Um, there has to be a much stronger messaging from the Department of Defense and, frankly, the industry trade associations on what this means. So I expect, you know, you'll see all, all these parties swinging a high gear as it looks more probable. But but for now, you know, the the, the narrative of, oh, you know, Speaker Johnson's new and it's just, um, you know, he's right. trying his new shoes on. I'm more skeptical than that. I think, I think there's there's a plan here and. The, the question is, you know, do people understand the implications of that plan? And my hope is once they do, then there'll be some changes either to, you know, adjust the terms in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, um, if we're going to operate under a full year CR, which is still possible, or, you know, to get these appropriations bills done. Um, I would uh, just point out that the current defense plan uh, is is really unexecutable, uh, nor does it achieve everything we need it to achieve, right? In this moment of maximum danger, uh, when our own weapon stocks are running low, we have trouble generating the kind of combat capacity we need. We're not building anything as quickly as we uh, need to. So I, I think that the timing of this is, is particularly bad uh, or particularly really good uh, if you're Chinese, uh, Russian, uh, Iranian, or, or North Korean. Um, give us your quick take uh, on the war. Obviously, at the top of the show, we heard uh, from uh, Ilan Berman, uh, and we heard from Sam talking a little bit about the Ukraine war. From your standpoint, what are some takeaways in the last 24, 48 hours, one week uh, from uh, well, Israel's I wrote about this. I mean, look, I'm going to keep it narrowly the war. I think the one, the one observation was, you know, I'm where I was. I'm working off data that was, I think, as of Friday. But the IDF casualties that had been announced were relatively light. Uh, I think they've had 24 killed in action, which is tough in and of its own right. But you know, the magnitude of the operation, the scale of it, you know, it, it could point to two things. You know, first, um, they're using tactics where they're really not exposing their infantry. Um, that's accompanying armored vehicles, and there has been some social media. Um, postings can't always account for the veracity of these, but uh, that show IDF vehicles being hit by Hamas in Gaza City. The other, of course, is you know the very lavish use of air and artillery power to knock down anything <clears throat> that could uh, contain um, Hamas fighters that might harm Israeli dismounts or armored vehicles. And um, you know, I don't know the proper answer to it right now, but um, that 24 KIA, you know, look look at how many casualties U.S., for example, suffered during the operation in Fallujah. Um, and so, uh, and I don't think there's anything, you know, I felt this way all along, Vago, that Hezbollah was unlikely to jump into the war here, that Lebanon is such an economic basket case that their Hezbollah's deterrent value for Iran is kind of better withheld. Um, it's not to say they won't change, but you know there was a statement or a speech that uh, was made by their um, uh, Secretary General Nasrallah uh, last Friday that you know kind of and it was ambiguous, but it it certainly didn't kind of indicate that Hezbollah was straining at the leash to kind of get in the war here. Now, he is supposed to make another statement, I think, either Friday or Saturday. So we'll see what changes. But, you know, so far, besides the, the you know, kind of picking back and forth on the northern border, you know, the Houthi efforts to fire right. long-range missiles, um, 
you know, I still think the one to watch is going to be what happens to the West Bank. Um, and if you have a civil war there, that's going to be a problem. But, uh, you know, from just a strictly defense industrial standpoint, I, I don't see a whole lot here that's really going to change the defense outlook. Um, and we've got about a 30 seconds left. It's a very busy week. Give the audience the highlights they ought to be paying attention to, aside from Submarine League, of course, which is its big annual meeting. Right. Well, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks is going to be speaking at CNAS, mainly on veterans recruitment and retention issues. Hopefully someone asked her about Replicator. Senate Foreign Relations is holding a November 8th hearing on U.S. national security interests in Ukraine. Uh, General James Dickinson, commander of U.S. Space Command, is speaking at CSIS on November 8th. Uh, Atlantic Council is doing an event on Monday, uh, later today, on integrating 5G technology for a more networked force. And um, Aviation Week is holding their Aerospace Defense Programs Conference. Uh, George Mason uh, University and Defense Acquisition University are holding a, a government contracting conference on November 9th. The theme is resilience for the future. So there is a lot going on. Uh, and uh, very quickly, I neglected to ask you this. What were the big takeaways from earnings uh, this uh, last week from your standpoint? Honestly, Vago, there wasn't a whole lot more that really jumped out at me. Uh, you know, the, the the reactions were fairly positive. Um, you know, margins were fairly stable, if not up uh, for, for a number of these companies. Uh, you know, a lot of these lighthouse kind of led the way with a, you know, positively received result. But People like Curtis Wright, um, Kratos, you know, the margins were actually pretty good. I don't think anything that would, I would call breakout or kind of setting a new trend, but it, it was an okay quarter. And I, I just think, you know, if you look at the organic growth rates that companies have been reporting, they've been consistent with a, 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 an outlay number that we talked about before the whole start of the earnings season. It was pretty, you know, high, high single digits and there's never a high correlation between percentage change, but but in the uh, investor, in what companies show for organic growth uh, from their U.S. defense operations and what that DOD investment outlay number is. But uh, the trend is usually the same. So, um, you know, I, I still think going back to the tar start of the discussion we had today, the, the big question is really this budget and what is it going to mean for 24, 25 and 26 guidance? But that's a bridge we have to cross later, later in 2024. Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, have a great uh, day, a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. I will, I'll go and look forward to it. Thank you. And look forward to seeing you in DC this week. Thanks again. Thank you.